0: I like math because it can tell a story that isn't necessarily visible, but I can give you math and digits that actually can help us explain how things are connected. That to me is magic.
1: Imagine a world where what's measured actually matters. A society where individuals or companies are not judged by what someone thinks they know, but rather what reality suggests, what the numbers infer, and what the data and metrics that govern that relationship are really saying. Today's guest embodies that mantra, and she's on a mission to use those words for the betterment of humanity. Armed with the power of storytelling, analytics, and a passion for data, Diana McFadder is on a mission to use data for good. Data for good is a catchphrase that's easy to say, but hard to do. After all, what does data for good actually mean? And what ramifications does that moniker carry with it? Deanna is an accomplished behavioral scientist, a college athlete, a West Point graduate, but most importantly, she's a leader in the world of data entrepreneurship. Today, Diana is the CEO and co-founder of Nachi, a company that uses patented data storytelling to bring forth transformational change for her clients. Deanna joins the show today to discuss the power of math, how numbers and equations combined with an innovative storytelling approach can help people, and what organizations can do to rise to the occasion. Let's jump into today's episode of Hidden in Plain Sight.
2: This season of Hidden in Plain Sight is brought to you exclusively by our friends at Splunk, the data to everything platform. Splunk helps organizations worldwide turn data into doing. It's time for data to be more than a record of what happened. It's time to make things happen. Learn more at Splunk.com or by clicking the link in our show notes.
1: Deanna, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks a lot. It's really a pleasure to be here. I'm excited.
1: As we get into today's conversation, we're talking about data for good. We're talking about leadership. We're talking about your story. And our personal stories matter, right? They are your stories, your superpower. And I really like how you're teaching people to value their personal experiences. Um, we live in a world where the media is trying to like rob us of our personal experiences. Um, you have some really interesting thoughts about the healthcare system that I'd love to get into. So if you're ready, let's um yeah, let's go deep. Awesome. So, Deanna, when you describe where you're from, where you grew up, uh, what stories come to mind? Where are you from and where'd you grow up?
0: I'm from Ohio. I grew up in Ohio, um, a little suburb of Columbus called Pickerington. I love where I grew up. Um, you know, I was super fortunate. Um, my parents obviously moved there. They grew up in North Carolina um, for us to have better opportunities, better public schooling. And I was in like the girls basketball capital of America, basically. Um, So since I was super little, seven or eight, I was kind of in a program groomed to be, you know, a really good athlete. So that kind of discipline and dedication was in my blood um, in in the way that I kind of engaged even as a little kid. Um, So, so yeah, I'm, I'm I'm a Midwesterner through and through. um, And now I've kind of, you know, lived all over the world um, as an adult. So, so yeah, but, but home is, still Ohio in terms of where I grew up.
1: So I love the athletic background. And I think that that's an important place to start because you mentioned discipline, right? It's something that is difficult to learn. It's difficult to teach yourself that. How did athletics help you learn that crucial skill of discipline?
0: Well, I think athletics for sure. And also just my parents, right? So it's like, if you're going to choose to do that. So I was a three-sport athlete really. And so I was soccer, basketball, and did, and did track as well. And I was also recruited to play um, soccer in college. It just kept me in a routine. And now I say things like, I say these really fancy phrases, right? Like whatever you measure, you are able to manage, right? So if I'm doing practice and I'm, I'm forced to go to something every single day where you're gonna measure me, right? Like how good are you? Are you gonna be in the starting lineup? Are you gonna do better than your friend? You know who you have this frenemy relationship with? That measurement in a sense, every single day with me as an athlete, created that kind of um, movement for me, I was seeing progress in my life every day, right? me getting better at something every single day, which I think created a different kind of confidence in my ability to evolve. Right. So, so I'm not just what I am when I show up, that if every day I put something towards it, um, I'm going to get better. And that means that I'm going to be able to compete probably in arenas that you might not think I could have. Um, And so for me, it was a it was a bit of an underdog, a bit of an overcoming um, because I was a pretty good athlete. But I played with plenty of people that were better athletes than me. Um, But because I wasn't afraid to work. Right. And every second that I was practicing, I was giving it all I had. I didn't, you know, like kind of cheat a little bit. It's a very different story academically in terms of I had some prowess there. Right. So I didn't have to study as much. But as an athlete, yes, I'm blessed with with certain just gifts, but I worked. Um, and so, and, and my team had that mentality. So I, I have lots of stories around beating people that athletically were better than me or us, right? It's like, oh, people would have ranked that girl higher than me, right? If you just look one-on-one and I beat her. So how did I do that, right? I was smarter. I worked harder. So Because if you just look at ability, she should have beat me, but she didn't. Right. So, so, that was kind of the, that gives you a certain level of confidence then that if I think about now the rooms that I'm in where everyone's supposed to be smarter than me or has more experience than me, I'm like, eh, If if I just use my brain, right. And use my experience, maybe I can come out of that as well with something where I added value.
1: For sure. And I think too, just remembering when, you know, when you're in those rooms that there's knowledge that those people don't have, right? It's, you know, we live in this world too, where everybody has the traditional credentials and a lot of those are still celebrated. But the, you know, if you go off the beaten path and you have really individual experiences that like you mentioned, where you're paying attention, you're working every day, you're measuring things, you have a lot to bring to the table that these folks otherwise might not have. So how did you go from where you were to, you know, academically, you know, you went to West Point, how did your athletics and academics kind of like ramp up to this place where you got into West Point and how you, you launched yourself afterwards? What was that process
0: like? Yeah. So really there was no option except to overachieve in my family. Um, so, um, and it was not this kind of like iron clad leadership, you know, from my parents. It was just instilling in us that, that you need to apply yourself fully. Um, so that meant I was always doing that in the classroom and I was doing that on the field, right. Or on the court. Um, and my brother was, um, super smart and accomplished and he was older and I'm the middle child and have a younger sister. And so obviously when you're following a sibling, you know, in the same school system, there's a certain standard that you have to live up to. Um, so that paved the way for sure, you know, at a certain level. And, and so I was, you know, again, good enough academically. I, I started getting college letters when I was 12 or 13 for both basketball and soccer. So I kind of was like, oh, this could be a reality. So, and I was in that train of coaches calling me, you know so I knew that I could get a, at least partial and probably a full scholarship if I just wanted to focus on on sports. Um, but also I, again, because my parents I applied myself academically and I did well on all the standardized testing. Um, so I did the national merit scholarship and all of that. And I, and so I was afforded that I also could have gone academically quite a few places. So then you're left with, again, the hardest thing that I have in my life now, which is choice, right? So when you actually have choices, um, it's hard and it's a privilege, right? To have choice. I honestly got to West Point and I went there and committed because I felt like that's where I was supposed to go. It was something beyond this world, right? It was a spiritual feeling. It was God, I felt like telling me, this is the path that you need to take. Um, and obviously in hindsight, I can, I, I know that that was true. Um, and so it was, it was that, yeah, it was hard, but I liked hard things. And I was super independent yeah. as a kid. So it was, how can I do something? You know what I mean? It, it, I love when people sure. didn't think I could do it. Um, and so no one doubted me. That was close to me, but you know, the wor- quote unquote, the world doubted me. Right. And so it was like, if I can accomplish this um, and really going into West Point, I thought it would just be the military, right? I thought, okay, it's the military, but we weren't really at war, nothing major at the time that I went in, but September 11th happened while I was there. Um, and so then it became applying myself in a different way, you know, in terms of preparing and what my friends were, were feeling out. And then obviously I went through the medical discharge when I graduated, I had a couple of hip surgeries while I was there. And so I had a completely different path and was thrust into corporate America um, after turning down a couple of other things. So for me, it was, it was then, okay, I just wanted to work for a place that was known, just being honest, right? It was like, I didn't want to go to something that I didn't know. So I had the CIA, I had a couple of construction companies, because I thought about, you know, building and architecture. And my dad was trained to be an industrial architect. And the CIA, like, I, I had that dream of like, could I be a spy or could I break codes? And I dabbled in that a little bit at school. And then there were these, all these corporations, right, that were really different. For me at least, but but felt like they were going to touch on that marketing and management bug, and I had majored in in management, and so that thrust me into this world of kind of data and insights that I'm in now, but i I wouldn't have played it out that way there's no way I would have known where I would have where I would be um, based on where I started you know
1: sure, and when it comes to that world of data and insights, uh, what are some of the data and insights that pulled you into that world? what made it so compelling and What was your kind of like aha moment or series of aha moments that got you really excited about the future of data and how we can use it to make the world better?
0: So for me, I mean, the first thing was I've I've always loved data and in particular statistics and and geometry, because those to me are like the storytelling versions of math. Statistics, right, It's always applied to like a problem, a problem set, a story, right? if this, then that, and you know, when you're on the train and it's going at X miles per hour, then what's the probability that you're going to get there on time and all that stuff. Right. It's, it was the application of most statistics is in real life. So I always kind of liked that even before yeah. I knew what statistics actually was um, and geometry, right. It just makes pictures. So I, I love that. Right. I love the fact that, Oh, I could connect these dots essentially. Right. And make shapes and those mean things. And they have relationships. Um, and you can use equations to break those things down. Um, and so I always just loved that as a, as a kid all the way through school. And then when I got to Procter & Gamble, what was really cool is what I was doing with numbers. Um, the only way someone would listen to me is if I told them what to do with the numbers. So there was no value in my pictures or my stories unless I also told them what to do, which I was like, oh, that's quite empowering, right? Fresh out of college that I was telling buyers, like, I think you should get rid of that product because of X, Y, Z, right? Because the numbers are telling me these things. And I think this is connected to these people not having this need, right? They don't need that product in that way. Sure. So without me even knowing it, now that's actually a very coveted skill, but I was just thrust into it, right? Like being able to connect all those dots and use data insight and analytics to tell people what to do um, in a way that feels that like they're taking less risk because you gave them a number to rationalize their emotional decision. That was was really um, meaningful for me, and that brings up like the second aha was that when I got comfortable with even though I'm a numbers person that there's also value in me being able to tell a story because people make decisions in story. Then you realize that they are only rationalizing with the numbers. So the reason I get to come back in the room a second time is because I also know the numbers. But the reason I got in the room is because I can tell you a story that inspires, right? That that lifts someone up, and so having that ability and valuing it as opposed to thinking that I needed to strengthen one or the other. That makes sense, right? I valued them in combination. Um, And so that then, when you then, you know, drink the Kool-Aid or take the right pill and realize that, oh, I can harness these things to actually leave the world better than I found it. I can, instead of this age old, and I think the generation before us, it was all about you make your money and then you do good, right? It's like, make all your money. And then you can focus on the things that are legacy things and that can leave the world in a better place and you can donate and be a philanthropist. And what's great about our society today, and I think what our parents have allowed for us to to dream, that there's no reason to separate it. We can do well and do good. And for me, data empowers us to actually make those decisions intelligently. So as opposed to you just thinking that it's doing good. I can actually power you with some criteria, with understanding, I can measure it. Well, did it do good? If in the end it was supposed to uplift this community, let's talk to that community. Or what are the indicators of someone being uplifted, right? Like, and how can we measure that? Um, versus it just being a nice phrase of saying, 10 people came to my conference that wouldn't have been able to come to my conference if I hadn't have put my money there. Sure. Well, but what impact did it have on their lives, right? Did it move them or were you just, just another thing that happened in a day. So for me, it was realizing that it's possible. It was that why wait Um, and knowing that it's possible to do that every day. And I don't have to do that in a way that means I don't make money. It's that we can do those things together, that if it actually creates value, you should make money. So it's just reorienting ourselves around, well, what is valuable then to us? And can we measure those things? And most of the time when I ask that question, I say back, yes, like I can find a way to measure that. Right. And and most people, I think, just don't go that far. I go one step further usually in most things. So that leads a lot of times to overanalyzing, but then sometimes it leads to a benefit, right? And I get some extra insight.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And that extra insight, the overanalysis can lead to data that was previously, you know, people were brushing off. They didn't take seriously Um, There's this industry term called dark data that just denotes all of a company's data that they're currently not collecting. And there's about 60 percent of data is estimated to be dark where it's just, you know, for whatever reason, it's not tapped into. So I'd be curious to know in your work with companies, do you ever come across any data like this or, you know, are you ever discovering anything or any stories about times that you discovered data that was previously like not used?
0: Yeah, I think um, all the time. So that's actually my favorite thing. We go in and say, you don't actually need more data. You probably already have it, right? right? Or it's already running, you know, on just the surface of what you're already looking at. Um, But how can we harness it, put a filter on it, connect it to something else that gives you value you didn't have before? And so I think the the best example is I like making things qualitative, quantitative. So there's some brand like Lysol, always new. Right. That that fear drove the brand. Right. So when we were afraid, we're in a time right now, right? Those disinfectant brands are out of stock. Right. You cannot get them. Right. Because we're we're in the times of COVID um, globally. And so we know that if someone's afraid of something in the terms of germs, that they are going to then buy something that they think will protect them. That makes sense, right? But what we didn't actually have is that quantitatively. All you could do is look at it in hindsight. Right. You could look at the fact that in hindsight, yes, the flu was going up at that time. And so what happened essentially while I was working on Lysol is we actually started to integrate the flu data into our modeling and forecasting. So that is data that is there, right? And everyone knew it. The entire company knew that the flu, right, or any kind of epidemic or, or fear was actually driving it because we knew when we put more People sneezing in the commercial, more people bought the product. We kind of knew in hindsight, right? Like, oh, there was a, flu, the, a high flu season and look at how well we did. But no one was really using it in a sophisticated way. And it really wasn't being put in the models alongside our marketing activity. So when you weight those two things together, then what's more worth it, right? Is it, is it more worth it for us to just better understand what's going to drive the flu? And so we can put our investment in other places versus over-investing in advertising when really, if they don't feel like, if, you know, if there's not a threat, they're not going to buy it. So it was, it was things like that where that's just sitting there, right? The flu data is, is, is actually, and what we found out was people searching flu was more accurate than the actual weather data on how many people, you know, like the health data on how many people had the flu. So it was, it was because it was more emotional than it was real, right? It wasn't if I had the flu. It was if I think maybe the flu is rampant in my area, I will buy the product. So what we ended up doing, using was just search, um, search data to actually in, inform that, right? So it's like, what's the landscape around your products? This is how I think about it. What's the landscape and all the things that could be influencing someone being interested in your benefit? And how can you get a measure of that? And you might already have it, right? You might already have it inside your company, or it might be at your fingertips on something available publicly exactly. um, that didn't cost you anything, right? Yeah. And it, all, all you did was need to integrate it into your decision-making process.
1: Sure. And the current company that you're the CEO of, I would love for you to tell us about that and unpack the story about uh, why, right? Like, so, what's your why behind your new venture?
0: The company that I'm heading up now, it's called Nachi, um, and it's it's named after the Fibonacci, Fibonacci sequence. sequence. I love yep. It. So I am a, a dork. <laughs> um, thank you. Uh, and so, right, so Fibonacci, the third number is the sum of the previous two numbers, right? And it's a sequence that goes like that. But what's cool about it is where that sequence can be found in our natural lives. So it, you can find it in nature. You can find it in the art that we find beautiful. It's in the fruit that we eat. It's in waves. It's the way that a, a whale you know, comes up for air. If you look at it overhead, you can see the Fibonacci spiral um, being made in the water. Like It is everywhere. And I see that as a tru- the truest form of mixing art and science. Um, and so if, if you think about what I was talking about before around the value of both the story and the kind of logic, right, and the math and the, and the data that, that informs that story and gives you the details and the characters within the story. Um, and so Nachi is all about that. It's how can we give you the right metrics, right, the right characters, the right people, place, and things, the data, so that you have a story that takes you kind of to a new level of growth, um, to new possibilities, and for us, our orientation is trying to take the world to a, to a world that's all about generative and a net positive economy. That we, we truly believe that profit at all costs isn't helping anyone, right? It helps very few people. And unfortunately, it's not transparent on how many people it's helping. Um, but once you know, you can't unknow it. So we got insight into that through our experience. And so now we're using everything that we do from the methodologies that we employ and the, the way that we bring data to life with analytics and different applications to help inspire people to actually build their businesses in a different way, um, in a way where they're oriented towards good, where they're measuring the value that they create in a more holistic way that goes beyond just profit.
1: I love that you mentioned about the Fibonacci sequence appearing in nature and, you know, there's things like the golden ratio that kind of coincide with this. Um, let's talk about that just for a little second, because... It's yeah. mysterious, right, that mathematics uh, is part of our world and we've somehow kind of teased out this language that resembles everything, that allows for everything. Um, how did you get interested in mathematics and, um, yeah, why did you settle on this this concept? Obviously, it's like, you know, mysterious and there's a sprinkling of like something that's like divine or, you know, by the creator.
0: Yeah, so, there's a spiritual element to it for sure. Yeah, so me, mathematics. My mom is is a computer engineer and was like a math major in college. So again, even if I say that that had nothing to do with it, it obviously had everything to do with it. So I've always liked math. You know, was the kid with the math awards, and you know, and I have a statistics award that I got at West Point. So just again, I like math because it can tell a story that isn't necessarily visible. So being able to uncover how things are connected that we can't see with the naked eye, but I can give you math and digits that actually can help us explain how things are connected, that to me is magic, um, right. right? Like that's something that is beyond our normal comprehension and, and numbers are just a language and equations and theorems are just a language for us to understand that. So I've always loved that, but I never wanted to just be about the math. Um, so what took me down the path of Fibonacci is actually, I was just researching mathematicians and, and concepts, right. And philosophies, that, that valued the art as well, right? They, they valued the narrative and the story that it created. So that took me down, a, I'm obsessed with Leonardo da Vinci. Um, and so that took me down the path of Leonardo da Vinci and a whole bunch of mathematicians that are from Egypt and you know, just diving deep into the origins of math right. um, and, and statistics and, and geometry really and shapes. And things that, again, are very normal to us now that, that are actually ancient.
1: Right. And they used to be closely guarded, right? Pythagoras and his uh, his, yes, his followers, exactly. like there's some wild, uh, wild ways that this type of information has been protected and transmitted over the years. Um, Hard won insights, I'm sure. Right. Like we have all these modern technologies to help us, but some of these folks were coming up with this. I don't even know where, right. But.
0: Yeah, exactly. I, I think it was, it was by chance, right. It's that Why, like I was watching um, a a new show on Netflix called Connected. I don't know how new it is, but it's really cool. And I think it's Bernard's principle or something. So it's this mathematical principle that in modern times it was discovered because someone was looking at an old book of like numbers, you know, like it was like logarithmic numbers or something. And all the numbers in the beginning, like the pages in the beginning had more um, indentations. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. So this is just, this is like we were talking about in the beginning. It's through your experience and paying attention Someone discovers something that oh then there must be something about the numbers that come at the beginning right right and and that was that's a whole kind of system of there's there's a higher propensity for the beginning the early numbers the one twos and threes than the seven eights and nines which is crazy and it's it seems to be naturally occurring and I don't I don't think any of that's by coincidence but not to get off to to you know I think everything is by design which I also love I, I truly see Fibonacci as like God's signature yeah. on things that we're doing, right? And so, so that I also just love, right? I love that there is a spiritual component to this that we, can, that we can just get a glimpse into. And if we can use that conceptually, right? To empower the companies that we work with, we're well ahead, I think, of people that are just looking at the numbers for numbers sake and not looking at how they're connecting dots beyond that, yeah. right? And what story and picture that it's painting. So my why is that? It's that, that we are moved by story, um, that stories truly change the world. And so if stories can go beyond just what someone thinks, right, and, and have some rigor that informs them and empowers them, we think that math can inspire creativity, not thwart it.
1: I completely agree. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So that's what we're about. You know, like that's what Nachi is all about. And so all the things that we bring to life, they feel less like math and data and analytics and dashboards and more like narrative and story that's what we at least aspire to do. And again, it's because we truly believe that storytellers are who, who the world. Right. But we all have the potential to be that. I lean a little bit more into the math for some people and a little bit more into the narrative for others.
1: Good plan. And when it comes to storytelling, are there any favorite uh, folks that come to mind for you? Anyone that's inspired you, whether they're fictional authors or uh, directors of films, any favorites there?
0: Oh, good question. Um, for me, I mean, I, I, you know, a great orator. Obviously, I watched the the Democratic National Convention. Like, Barack Obama is amazing, you know, in in, his, in the way to to paint pictures. And so we have great orators of our time that I am inspired by all, all the time. Maya Angelou is a poet, so I love poetry too. Right? It's, it's succinct. It actually takes you beyond what the words are, are saying. So poets are actually who inspire me most um, as I'm thinking through things. And then there's there's plenty of pe- people that can. Paint a picture and, and have a scene, but I don't idolize that, so it's it's hard for me to ever pick a person that comes from kind of the the, the Hollywood world. Ava DuVernay, I love you know just again just because she cares about the cinematography as much as the actual directing itself. Um, and so, if you look at the you know the, the pictures that she's brought to life, the colors right and the moments that are captured feel very real. So we connect to it differently, and then I think we listen. I listen differently because you painted the picture differently, right? And and gave it room to breathe, which that's how we live. We live in there's room, right? There's space for you to let it marinate and let it land. Um, and so that's what I really value as well is that I don't have to inundate you with everything all at once, right? It's it's how do I kind of take you on a bit of a journey to to take you through it and and have you left with insight that inspires. So we actually talk about. We have a model that that our team goes by, which is all about engaging, um, educating, and enlightening. So it's those E's. It's like, so how am I doing that? So I have to engage you actually first. So some people start with the education, right? They like, here, let me tell you all the facts and figures that are important. That is not how you get someone to lean forward. Actually, you get someone to close up when you lead with the facts and figures. I just want to engage. Well, that might just be with a beautiful picture. It might be with, with audio. I might throw some music in, right? I might tell you a story so I can engage you first. Then I educate you. And then hopefully I leave you with enlightenment where then you're like, I'm empowered to do something different, to make a different decision, you know, to, to actually do something that's better for the world versus just better for me. Um, and so that's, that's kind of that, that model that we live by um, when it comes to storytelling. And, and how we inspire, I think, even our, our data scientists to think in that way. You know, it's not left to just someone that someone dubbed as creative.
1: Sure. And so there's a number of uh, verticals and areas that you focus on, whether at your company, uh, whether it's health and wellness, media and entertainment, retail, food, education. Uh, how did you kind of settle on those? And are there any of those that are your favorites or that you're really passionate about right now? Any, uh, any projects um, that are you know, aligned with those verticals that you can tell us about?
0: Yeah. So, so for us, um, it was all about, for me, I, I hate boxes, right? I've, I've talked about this in a couple of different interviews that I've done over the years. And so I never felt limited by, like, I think the industry verticals that for some reason define the way that we do business just don't make sense. I like definitions based on people and, and the way that we live crosses industry verticals, right? Like I have a different industry right now all around me. Um, and so I, I wanted us to design for people, for life, for livelihood, for us to thrive. Um, and so the industries that we've chosen are all about that, right? It's the the ones that we see at the intersection of how we live today, but and how we want to live tomorrow, right? Who we are and who we want to be. So that's the reason why we've prioritized healthcare, and that's kind of been health and wellness. Um, you know, has been our first one that we've put the most energy on. Is because if, if I'm not healthy and I don't feel good, I can't be good, right? I can't do good.
1: And the type of stories that are appealing too are just like, you just close down to the enlightening, empowering and educating stories. Yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. And it's also, it also gives us a little bit of an out because you can almost put everything in wellness in a way. <laughs> it's, right? it's like, so, so, so it get, it, we get to then play. So it's a bit of a trick. People feel like we're focused and at the same time, we can we can go across the board um, when we when we talk about people as our as our North Star and livelihood as our North Star. But health for, for us, it's it's like, why do we why should we have to compromise? Right? And so the companies that we work with, um, the startups that we're that we're powering, it's why are we even talking about compromising? Um, it's our health. So shouldn't it just be designed in a way where we actually feel like we're getting better? Um, and understand it. And unfortunately our traditional systems around health and wellness, right. Are, are not built for that. And and they're called healthcare, but they aren't built for us to be healthier, right. They're incentivized for us to actually need more treatment yep. and more work. Yeah. And not s- less. slow
1: decline. And it's just like, that's their premise is based on like slow decline and, pl- and it's almost like planned obsolescence, which gives me like eerie chills. Uh, and, 100%. and yeah, do not like that vibe whatsoever. Um, so let's talk about that a little bit. Like Uh, Because often we take for granted that we're just going to get older and slower. Like this doesn't have to be the case. Like we can increase, increase uh, health spans. And this is something that should be really desirable. If you look into research around blue zones and areas where people live to a hundred and well beyond it, um, there's so many other ways of health and wellness out there. So what are some of your favorite stories when it comes to uh, health and wellness uh, about kind of expanding people's minds about what's possible, right?
0: Yeah, well, a couple of things, like one, my sister's a chiropractor. Um, And so just her in in itself, I think it opened my eyes a lot to what's actually possible. And and it made it tangible, I think. Right. So you can believe something, but it needs to be tangible for you to have empathy around it. Um, And so going into her office and reading the testimonials, this is from kids, you know, seven, eight years old that were diagnosed with dyslexia, you know, or some other kind of learning disability to to them feeling a hundred times better right? And having a completely different life experience because of her hands, right? No medicine, no nothing. She used her hands, moved their bodies, right? Which cleared something up, mm-hmm. right? Had something come into alignment that, that had the blood flowing and the nerves and, and our brain waves going in a way that was more by, by the way that we were designed versus all the modern things that we've put on top of it. So to see genuine healing with hands, right, and with our mind as well, I've seen plenty of that through meditation, open your eyes to like, "Mm, there must be a better way, right? Like there definitely needs to be a balance of over-medicating a society um, and and being able to do things just with, with things that we might not so logically understand, but we know it works, right? So I don't necessarily understand that, but it works. So why wouldn't we invest in that? And, and take a more holistic picture. And so just, just, again, reading her testimonials, being a part of some you know, meditations that were around the, the connection between our mind and our body and the power that has, right? And the power of affirmations, which people know, but don't realize that you can also apply that to your health, For sure, right? And, and so that doesn't mean that I don't love modern science and medicine. And like, those things are needed, but those shouldn't be left to just the rich. And we shouldn't depend on just that. Right there should be an interdependency that's much more holistic. That actually something foreign going into our body should be the last resort. Um, And so that there's so much more that we can do. And like you said, those blue zones are doing all of those things. Right? They're happier. They're connected. They know their neighbors. They help each other. It's it's a lot of the social determinants Mm. that are driving their health. People Um, healing people. And so we're all yeah, people healing people. And so we're about community. We're about an ecosystem approach to, to everything that we're working with. No one's on an island. So any company or startup that we're helping, they are connected to the other companies and startups that we're helping. right? And you see those partnerships form and then being able to transform people's lives. That's business owners, that's consumers, it's patients, it's people. Um, and so that is what motivates us. Um, and I, and I, I am encouraged by, you know, we're just a couple of years in what we're seeing early on right, as the impact that we can have. And, and my co-founder, he had a, to tell one story. He started a, a pediatric dental brand called Hello Smile with his brother in the most disadvantaged communities around New York City. Um, and to see those communities transform and to have happier and healthier kids right, in a community that people would say, there's no way you're going to change their habits around them taking care of their mouths. Well, guess what they did? Right? And so so being able to to just with a little bit more care and attention, with designing the experience differently, right, with giving them a little help that didn't cost extra money. Right. It just required some foresight into how to design the experience has led to transformative, measurable results. Right. And healthier communities. And so that's what I'm inspired by. I'm inspired. He's who convinced me to use my powers for good, like commit to it. And him having those personal stories inspire me every single day and remind me of what's possible, right? And that one by one, we can do this. And when you're doing one by one, you know, in multiples, then then you can change the world quicker than we ever could have imagined.
1: Couldn't agree more. And you mentioned a couple of things there with healing about, you know, using hands and different chiropractic practices, meditation, uh, We don't really have a data set or the data sets we have around these things. They're not being taken seriously yet by a lot of the mainstream, um, but there's hopes that they will be soon. So you see different things like where the Veterans Affairs Administration is starting to offer transcendental meditation for veterans and they're showing that it has a really high efficacy for treating PTSD and things like that. So are there any, uh, whether it's that or any other examples, um, I'm just really curious to get your take on you know, what is the medicine of the future, right? Like maybe it's just meditation that you want to drill in on, but what type of medicines and practices do you think are going to become kind of standard for us in the future to, to heal and just be well?
0: Yeah. I think the future of all of that, like, you know, mental health meditation in particular is a more inclusive um, experience. And so one of the things that is frustrating, we actually have a couple of partners um, in this space. One, Minaj Diaz, who's Lululemon um, ambassador and has his own meditation practice. He's out of Australia, but there, there is. It's so interesting how the world of meditation doesn't feel as inclusive as it should be, especially if you look at where those practices come from. Right, they come from actually very diverse communities um, and actually from people of color. Um, And yet, especially in America, what those environments look and feel like don't necessarily feel like they're for everyone sometimes. And so, I think the future of it is it feeling much more inclusive and much more approachable in everyday right like so and that, that includes veterans right that includes um communities that we would we would say are on the other side of the opportunity divide that that don't feel like they have access and so i'm seeing real traction there and obviously us being able to access it digitally and people getting even better at being able to facilitate those kind of sessions in a digital environment, I think it's just going to open up even more opportunities. Being able to do it on my mobile device, right, is, is, is an incredible kind of um, benefit. So to me, I see it just being more inclusive, more approachable, and more accessible. And we have a couple of things in the works not ready to talk about yet that, that, I, that we're a part of. Like, hey, Amber Ray, if you look at her, look her up on Instagram, she is doing wellness in a completely different way right so it's it's the future of self self self-help where she just is going through her own experience it's not like she went to school for it but she's like this is how i tackled it in my own way and how she made friends with her feelings in a way that allows her to journal about it and and just just get it out of her head right and into something that she can understand Um, and so i think that that these the the wave of people like this that are, are seeing that there's no barrier for me to talk about my experience and through talking about my experience, right? Like that age old saying of my mess is my message, right? Through talking about my experience, I can maybe help people. And now we live in a digital world where that can then turn into something that you can actually get value from, right? Like you can, I will pay you for that, for you to share your experience, especially if you've codified that experience in a way that helps me break down my own. And so that's what I see as the future of it. I, I think we're going to see a blend of, so I also have a passion for, for musicians, um, and and, re- and artists in that way. And so we're playing with blending the worlds between um, musicians and meditation and wellness in that way, right? Like because a lot of people, right? You say a certain song or an artist saved your life, right? Like you listen to that and it opened your eyes to different possibilities and that you were not alone. And so we're tinkering with quite a few things that actually bridge that gap. And then how can we power an ecosystem that isn't in one industry right, but goes across wellness in a more holistic way and, and covers, you know, all of our senses and all the things that fill us up. And so I'm super excited, you know, to, to be playing with that and partnering with artists along that spectrum. Minaj and then, you know, Tatiana de Maria is an artist that, that she did a, a Instagram live with Minaj um, where they did a meditation and she was playing at the same time, right, her guitar. So it's just a very different way to approach things, they're up and coming personalities, right? In each of their spaces. And so for us to do that at scale with some bigger artists, I think the potential is is limitless.
1: Very cool. And yeah, it sounds limitless to say the least. Deanna, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for being generous with your time. If there is a final thought, story, or piece of data that you'd like to leave with our listeners, what would that be?
0: For me, it's um, just keep going and you know more than you think you do.
1: Powerful. Thanks so much for joining us and everyone listening. We'll see you next time.
0: Thanks, Chad.
2: I'm Sophia Bush, and you've been listening to Hidden in Plain Sight from Mission.org. This podcast is sponsored by our friends at Splunk, the data to everything platform. In today's data-driven world, every company, big or small, new or old, is sitting on terabytes of unused, untapped, and unknown data. Splunk helps turn all that data into action. Using cutting-edge AI and machine learning, Splunk delivers real-time predictive insights that will help you on your mission to change the world. With solutions for IT, security, Internet of Things, and business operations, Splunk empowers people to make faster, better decisions and take action to get things done. It's time for our data to be more than a record of what happened. It's time to make things happen. Check it out at Splunk.com.